At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy. Joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. The countries that protect religious freedom are those who provide the best treatment to minorities and the most vulnerable among us. God never says anything about you being happy. That's not the goal of life. And that's shocking, frankly, to a lot of people, even a lot of Christians. They're shocked to hear that God doesn't care if they're happy because they're convinced that's the whole goal of life, isn't it? The resurrection of Christ means that the roof has been blown off and the heavens are not made of brass. God became man. And this man brings not merely life over death, but he brings abundant life in the here and now. The gift of private confession and absolution, that is specifically there for those kind of moments where you are feeling the power of your sin and it's really bugging you. The youth of Holy Cross Lutheran Church, Carlisle, Iowa, love listening to Issues Etc. on their way to higher things. We don't know much about the man Pelagius, Just roughly when he lived, we do know what he taught. He taught that man is basically good and then man can fully cooperate in his salvation. The heresy that bears his name outlived him, still does in the form of semi-Pelagianism. And if you stop and think about it, it's lasted even longer given the fact that Pelagius was simply giving voice to what we naturally, as natural men, fallen sinners, think we are before God. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking about Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and double predestination with Dr. John Bruss of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We'll spend some time with Lyman Stone. He's Director of Research for Demographic Intelligence. We're going to discuss his research into religion and Canadian fertility rates, then Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us for part two of our series, Kids Have Questions. Today, some more questions about the afterlife heaven, the resurrection, and the new heaven and new earth. Dr. John Bruss is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's author of a column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled, The Question of Salvation. Dr. Bruss, welcome. Well, thank you, Todd. This is a wonderful opportunity for me. My wife and I are huge fans of Issues Etc., and actually lots of uh, members of our family as well. So I commend it to everyone I know. Thank you very much. How is this ancient heresy of Pelagianism still found among Christians today? Where would you hear it? Well, you hear it in the informal speech of Christians in contemporary America. The decision for Christ language that is so prevalent among the sects, as an example, is very much a sort of form of Pelagianism. We might call it semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism is also 
clearly taught by the Roman Catholic Church. So just to read to you a couple things from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, we have this quotation, the fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his own collaboration. So there we have, it's spelled out exactly how man works alongside of God, that we would call semi-Pelagianism. Another one that I think is even more straightforward is this, since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. So we hear that, and that sounds pretty good to us Lutherans. But it goes on. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Now you notice there that Luther typically, when he talks about the forgiveness of sins, and we all know this from the explanation to the Lord's Supper in the small catechism, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Note here in this passage how those two are separated and how man must cooperate once the initial grace is given to merit ultimately everlasting life. Why do you call Pelagianism Old Adam thinking? I do. The old Adam operates by what we Lutherans call the opinio legis, the opinion of the law. And the opinion of the law, basically, that little phrase simply means that we are wired as a result of Adam's fall into sin to come at every question having to do with our relationship with God on the basis of the law. In other words, the onus is on the sinner to bring about the reconciliation. And Pelagianism fits into that tremendously well. Basically, Pelagianism, again, makes the same assertion that all of this is on man, that original sin is not in play, and that man can be responsible for restoring the relationship or maintaining the relationship that he had with his creator. Who was Pelagius, and what was his basic error? So Pelagius lived, scholars aren't exactly sure, born around 356 in Britannia, in the Roman province of Britannia. And he had been touched by Christianity. This is post-Constantinian. Christianity is becoming quite popular religion in the empire. And as a result of that popularity. It's no longer a countercultural kind of thing. People are joining the Holy Christian Church for many of the wrong reasons, and there's a great deal of moral laxity. And to address that moral laxity, Pelagius, who was renowned for his asceticism, for his very kind of zipped-up way of life, Pelagius began teaching that original sin wasn't a thing, and that people could be good on their own. This is a pretty empowering message, in a sense. Of course, this is all directed at the external work. By about the year 380, Pelagius has come to Rome, and while in Rome, again, the attraction of his ascetical way of life was very appealing. He was received well by Pope Innocent I. Ultimately, however, when uh, Rome was sacked in 410, he made his way to North Africa, like many of the Romans did, came to the attention of St. Augustine. And as Augustine tussled with Pelagius and with his teachings, uh, as well as the teachings of one of Pelagius's disciples uh, known as Celestius, 
it came out that Pelagius taught entirely contrary to the scriptures. He was condemned in the year 418 by a local council known as the Council of Carthage and sent into exile. He was exiled to Egypt and never heard from thereafter. So how did Pelagius deal with passages that speak very clearly about man's fallenness and original sin? We've established that he has denied original sin, and uh, that denial created a sort of hermeneutical lens through which he looked at the passages that speak about original sin. And his basic move on every single one of those was to say that passages like that were spoken out of humility toward God and were not expressions of the ontological truth about humanity. What did Pelagius's error do to the necessity of Jesus' death for sinners? <laughs> it entirely took it away. And this was one of the major criticisms of Pelagius from early on in the Holy Christian Church. Christ simply becomes entirely unnecessary. Now, in Pelagius's system, he appears to have made Jesus into the exemplum par excellence, the uh, model that every Christian ought to follow. And so Christianity ended up being this sort of ethical kind of almost philosophical school whereby people, who Christians, would simply imitate the life of Christ and imitate the asceticism of Pelagius and Celestius. In all fairness, in his response to St. Augustine, he tries to uphold grace and recognizing that it's a biblical concept. St. Augustine talks about this in uh, his work called De Gratia Christi, chapter 5. And he directly quotes Pelagius at this point. And the way that Pelagius tries to maintain grace in the face of the attacks against his teaching is to say that the initial grace is that God has created human beings with a free will. And it's in the exercise of that free will that one lives up to the grace that God has given. So in other words, and we see this all the time with heresy, you repackage the terminology so that it works. You can use the terminology, but it functions in a fundamentally different way. So you mentioned, Augustine, how did the church respond to Pelagius? Well, as I mentioned, Augustine engaged in a long correspondence with and about Pelagius. In 418, as I mentioned, the Council of Carthage, which was simply a local council, rejected his errors. And I would love to share with you the canons that they passed. They passed these, there were anathemas against these. Uh, Adam was not created subject to death. So that was one of the teachings of Pelagius, that Adam was not subject to death. That infants are to be baptized for the remission of sins. Again, uh, since there's no original sin in Pelagianism, infants didn't need to be baptized. That's condemned. Grace not only gives remission of sins, but the aid that we sin no more. So that is the teaching that's alive and well in the Catholic Catechism that I cited a little bit earlier. Grace gives knowledge, inspiration, and desire to perform required duty. This is also condemned. Without the grace of God, uh, we can do no good thing. That is a positive teaching. The statement, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, should not be said out of humility, but because it's true. So Pelagius was asserting that 
statements like that are simply spoken out of humility. The same thing goes for forgive us our trespasses in the Our Father. So those were the canons articulated against Pelagius and his teaching at the Council of Carthage. Later, just what would this be, 13 years later at the Ecumenical Council held in Ephesus to deal with an entirely different set of issues, uh, mainly on Christology, Pelagian teaching was condemned under the name of Celestius, who was the disciple of uh, Pelagius. How did Pelagianism survive among Christians in the form of what you mentioned before, semi-Pelagianism? That's a really interesting question, and this one's a long one. So, even after Pelagius was condemned by regional councils and by the council at Ephesus in 431, Pelagianism, in the form of semi-Pelagianism, kept on popping up. So that, for example, in Gallia, which would be modern-day France, at the Council of Orange in the year 529, semi-Pelagianism has to be condemned. And the appeal of semi-Pelagianism, as you can imagine, is large. If you tell somebody that they're good enough to be good, you'll probably see some results. This is kind of how we operate according to the law in this world. Do you have, I don't know if you've got children, but we always use positive reinforcement with our daughter <laughs> in things of the law. And so you can derive palpable results by that kind of attaboy, backslapping theology. It was particularly appealing, as you might imagine, in monastic communities. And so it seems to have survived there better than in uh, many other places. Now, when it comes to showing up in the time of the Reformation, we're talking about a 1,000-year history. I'm going to simplify that in significant ways. Uh, as a result of the early persecutions in the church in the 4th century and earlier, uh, there grew up a practice of making amends for having fallen away from the church. So, for example, if you read the some of the canons of the Council of Nicaea, there are years and sometimes even decades placed upon readmission into the church. During that time, uh, you are to prove yourself a faithful Christian. Now, we can quibble with all of that. What happened, however, is that those kind of practices were taken over into the daily penitential life of the church. We all know about the, the practice of confession among Roman Catholics, uh, as it's still practiced uh, even today, that it is a confession of one's sins coupled also with satisfaction. Satisfaction are those works done, at least in the old way, to prove that you were sincere about your confession, but now in the new way to merit grace. Simultaneously, grace undergoes a kind of redefining as well. Instead of being the favor of God toward the sinner, the unmerited favor of God toward the sinner on the basis of the work of Christ, in the Middle Ages, it became a sort of a quantifiable thing. They talk, for example, about gratia infusa, grace poured in. And this is very crass, but I'm going to do it anyway. Imagine that you, Todd, are the tin man, and you're, <laughs> you're just a bunch of empty furnace pipes. And 
your goal as a Christian is to fill up those empty furnace pipes with as much grace as possible. If you get to the end of your road, that is to your death, full to the top, you have merited everlasting life. That's how gratia infusa works. So together with these uh, works of satisfaction on the one hand and the meriting of gratia infusa, semi-Pelagianism remained alive and well in the church that Luther inherited when he came into the world. Another theologian toward the end of the Middle Ages by the name of Gabriel Beale, uh, he was a 15th century theologian, spoke about one's disposition toward grace in these terms, facere quod in se est, doing what is in oneself. And the job, therefore, of, of a person, of a sinner, is uh, to do whatever he can to dispose himself properly to this infused grace of God. And that is rank semi-Pelagianism. Dr. John Bruss is our guest. We're talking about Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and double predestination. On the other side, how did the Reformers respond to this semi-Pelagianism? It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age you shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. It's commonly said that heresies are 90% truth and only 10% wrong, but it's the 10% that subverts all of Christian doctrine and all of Christian teaching by the essential errors that they promote. Well, if you're wondering about heresies, both ancient and modern, you should pick up a copy of the August issue of The Lutheran Witness, where we talk about these heresies, their ancient roots, and how to mark and avoid them. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or learn more at our website, witness.lsms.org. Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. On this Thursday, July the 27th, we're talking about Pelagianism and double predestination. Dr. John Bruss is our guest. He's Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of a column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Question of Salvation. How did the Reformers then deal with and respond to semi-Pelagianism? I think you can regard the entire Reformation as a wholesale rejection of the semi-Pelagianism. First of all, they looked at the scriptures themselves. One of the elements that went along with semi-Pelagian thinking in the late Middle Ages was this idea that baptism wiped away all sin, not uh, merely guilt for sin, but all sin, so that the forgiveness of sins was granted completely in baptism, but only for sins committed up to that point. What remained was only concupiscence. And yet we have statements by David, for example, in Psalm 51, right? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He acknowledges that that's rooted in his birth and conception in sin and transgression. And so the Reformation, it recognizes that the scriptures stitch actual sin together with original sin, that the reason that I sin today is because original sin still clings to me. This is one of the primary shots over the bow of semi-Pelagianism. If it's the case that my original sin still clings to me, then I am entirely beholden to the grace of God for my salvation, and there's still nothing that I can do to redeem myself. Second, they considered the scriptures themselves talking about the way that a, a sinner is justified. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, entirely by God's grace through faith, purely as a gift on the basis of the merit of Christ. And so if salvation is that, that is one entirely for me by my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, it can't be something that I also contribute to or add to by what I do or refrain from doing. How is double predestination, and please explain what it is, in some ways the opposite error of Pelagianism? All right, so I'll, I'll begin with an explanation, Todd, of, of what double predestination is. Double predestination teaches that God in eternity chose to create some persons for salvation and chose to create others for eternal condemnation. There's no middle ground there. The human being is either destined by God in eternity to be saved or destined by God in eternity to be condemned. One way to explain how this is the opposite or obverse of Pelagianism, Pelagianism places the entire onus for one's salvation and for the restoration of the sinner, such as he is, the restoration of the human being to God, on the shoulders of the human being. What double predestination does is it says correctly that God does predestine some to everlasting life, but it then also lays the burden for condemnation on the shoulders of God. In other words, God is the author of this evil that befalls uh, those who are condemned eternally. How should we rightly understand 
God's eternal election to salvation? God's eternal election to salvation. Uh, the scriptures are very clear about uh, how this works out. If you take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to read starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that is, God the Father chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Election, as the Bible speaks of it, is always election unto grace and in Christ. In other words, the scriptures do not speak of an eternal election to condemnation. Now, some opponents of Lutheran teaching will point to Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, for example, talking about the way that Pharaoh's heart is hardened as an eternal decree of God. That's just an incorrect idea. God's message of salvation goes out consistently and with his desire to save all men. This is what the scriptures teach, isn't it? That uh, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pharaoh's rejection of the message did lead to the hardening of his heart. And in fact, it was worked by God as punishment for his rejection of that message. To show us, us Christians, how we ought to receive the word of God gladly and with all reverence and to believe it. Before we let you go, you serve at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Why should a man or a woman consider studying for the vocation of pastor or deaconess at Concordia Theological Seminary? The first thing I would hold forward, Todd, is the theology that's uh, taught and practiced in, in this place. So we have 25-plus uh, fantastic Orthodox theologians on the staff, uh, on the faculty, teaching students uh, how to be theologians. That would be point number one. Point number two, this is a wonderful community, and I think the students know it and appreciate it. I certainly do. The faculty regularly interact with students outside of class. Students interact with one another. And they're very supportive of one another, kind of in an in-it-all-together way. And then finally, we really focus hard on mentoring to create the kind of formation of a pastor. The way that I've approached it, and I think a number of my other colleagues have, is that here we try to create a little mini ministerium. The ministry is a group project. It's <laughs> The Lone Ranger never received a divine call. And coming to rely upon and enjoy the mutual conversation and consolation of the brothers is a, just a critical thing uh, for a long career serving in Christ Church. And so those three things together commend our seminary very highly in my estimation, and I would encourage anybody in Missouri Synod thinking about studying for the ministry to give us a call at uh, CTSFW, and we will show you everything that I've just been talking about. Learn more about Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, or by calling 1-800-481-2155, 
forming servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. John Bruss is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, and author of a column for the Lutheran Witness Magazine titled, The Question of Salvation. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. This was a real joy. Lyman Stone, Director of Research for Demographic Intelligence, joins us on the other side. He's done some recent research into religion and Canadian fertility rates. Find out how your life story is interwoven with the life of Christ in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about Life in Christ at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Duluth, Minnesota would like to invite you to join us Sunday mornings at 9.30. Whether you are visiting our beautiful city or live here, we have liturgical worship that shares Jesus with you. We're easy to find at 20th Avenue East and Superior Street, and also offer Bible classes at 8.25 Sunday mornings with Sunday School September through May. Check out our website for other Bible study times, visit, or call 218-724-2500. Truth-Centered Mission Outreach you're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org